Um, So Isaiah 35, which is what we looked at last week, ended a section in Isaiah. So there was a little bit of a, there's there's a number of sections in Isaiah or, or themes or ideas that Isaiah hones in on. And so for about 10 chapters or so, Isaiah was dealing with the theme of God's power to save sinners. It wasn't just that he hypothetically could save sinners, but that he will save sinners who turn to him. And so for, for about 10 or, or more chapters, Isaiah dealt with that. And that ended, uh, that particular section ended in chapter 35. So, so 36 starts a new section in the book. And it's a pretty short section, uh, relatively speaking. It's only four chapters long. And it kind of changes the whole tone. Uh, the book changes tone here for the next four chapters because rather than just hearing Isaiah preach, which is basically what Isaiah has been up to this point. It's just hearing what God says to him and he says to us. Um, This is actually different. It's not about what Isaiah is saying. It's about the historical things that are happening during his his life, and and at least a, a snippet of that, primarily looking at one of the kings that was the king during Isaiah's life. Isaiah had four, I think, kings during his life. Um, one of them was this guy named Hezekiah. And, and so for the next four chapters, we're going to hear about Hezekiah and look at his, not his entire kingdom and what, what happened through his whole life, but we're going to look at some of the events in his life over the next, we're going to just take a couple Sundays on this, uh, do two chapters each week for the next couple weeks. So 36 and 37 today, and then 38 and 39 to, uh, next week, and then we're done, then we're going to be into a new section again. So, so that's where we're at. It's going to have a little bit of a different feel and tone because it's more of a historical re- recounting of what's going on rather than just a preaching at us about what God has to say. So, so just buckle in for that. Um, but here's what we're going to deal with today. This is a, I, I think there's so much incredible practical implications to the verses we're going to read this morning. Because so much of it has to do with how we can, can combat or fight the lies that we're so prone to hear in our lives and in the world and from Satan and from all these different angles. And so we hear lies all the time. We hear lies about who we are in Christ. One of the things that, that Satan does, one of his, actually that word Satan isn't a proper name, it's a title. Um, it means accuser. And so that's his job. Like his job is to accuse people of not being Christians. And that's what you you will notice he does to you probably more than anything else. He will plant the seed of doubt in your mind that you're not a Christian, that God can't forgive you, that he wouldn't do that even if he could. Um, You're going to hear those kind of lies coming through. And there's a lot of lies from a lot of angles that we hear as believers in Jesus. And so we're going to encounter several of those lies in chapter 36. That's basically all 36 is. It's just a series of lies. And then 37 is going to show us how we can combat those lies and deal with those as they come. And so um, what this, these couple chapters are going to do for us is they're going to show us how the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks into the lies that we are so prone to hear and believe about God and his power to save us. Okay, so, so I'm excited for that because I think you probably have dealt with this too as you've counseled people, maybe not in like a professional setting, right? But you've, you've had conversations with Christian friends and this is probably something you've had to help them walk through uh, is 
are you really a Christian? Is, are the things you're hearing true, right? And I, I as a pastor, I, I have the privilege of, of sitting down with people quite a bit and walking through these things. So I think it's a really good thing for us to, to see what God has to say. Um, so in chapter 36, we'll start here. This is what the theme is. The idea of this whole chapter is that we're going to see uh, basically the mouthpiece of the king of Assyria. Um, he's going to be speaking a bunch of lies to the people of Israel and to Hezekiah's people. Um, and, and the lies that he tells them are the same lies that Satan tells us. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. Now, of course, they're packaged differently, right? Because there's different circumstances and situations, but the lies at their core are the same. So let's get into chapter 36. We're going to start in verse 1 through 12. We'll take us through the first lie. And again, this is written as a, it's a story. It's a narrative. It's, it's recounting the historical uh, deal here. So, so just bear with us here. In, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, Sennacherib is the king's name, um, was a real person. You can find him on Wikipedia even. So he's this historical narrative. Okay? Um, Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. He came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So remember how Isaiah's just been dealing with this, this message that Assyria is going to come in. He's going to take, take you out, but God's going to protect you. Right? That's what he's been saying for, for chapters upon chapters. And now we're seeing that start to happen. Assyria is coming in. They're taking these fortified cities. Verse 2, the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh. Now, Rabshakeh was a title for a high-ranking military officer. Uh, it wasn't a proper name. It was a title, the Rabshakeh. And he was basically the spokesperson on behalf of the king. The king's not going into these little territories and fighting these battles. He's back in the capital and he's doing his thing. Uh, so he sends his, his people to do this. And uh, he sends this guy called the Rabshakeh. Uh, he sends him from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him... Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So these are, these are people that Hezekiah has sent to talk to the Rebshekah, if you're following. Okay? So we're going to have a lot of these names thrown around, so just try to, I know it's hard to keep them all straight, but we'll do our best. So the Rebshekah said to them, so here's you got these four, this envoy from Hezekiah, Again, Hezekiah was the king, so he's not going to personally go talk to some officer from the army. He, you know, he's going to deal with the king directly or he's going to send people in his place. So he sends some people to the Rebshekah, and the Rebshekah is going to deliver a message for King Hezekiah. Verse 4, the Rebshekah said to them, say to, the, to King Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. So he's going to just re- record what he's been told to say. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. 
But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying Judah and saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against the land. Uh, to, or is, sorry, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. All right, that's pleasant, right? So here's what's, here's what's happening. If you're just tracking the, with the story, the Rebshekah has a message to say to Hezekiah and really to all of Israel. And his message is this, um, you, you can't win this war. And uh, essentially what he's saying here, he's actually saying a couple of things that are just untrue. Um, but here's the primary lie he's speaking in this moment. He's saying to them, you can't trust in God, you can't put your hope in God, you can't trust in him because you failed too many times. That's really what he's saying. He's saying you can't trust the Lord because, and he points out two different ways in which, which were true, but uh, were not true in how he was applying them. He gives them two examples of the ways in which they failed or have sinned. The first was, he points out their trust in Egypt. Right? He, he makes a big point of, hey, you guys have trusted in Egypt and that's a broken reed. It can't really help you. It's going to fail you. Um, but, but remember, if, in the context of Isaiah, the book itself, that decision to align themselves was, with Egypt was a really bad decision. And God was really angry about it. Um, he, he did not, he did not like, pat them on the back for their ingenuity to try to come up with this plan to... Um, to, to align with Egypt. And so the Reb Sheka is pointing out to them their failure in this. He's saying, look, you guys put your trust in Egypt. That was, that was a mistake. So the Lord's probably not going to help you here. And then he goes on to point out the second thing, which was he, he actually points out, well, even if you said, okay, we're not going to trust in Egypt anymore. We're going to trust in the Lord. Well, here's the problem. You guys have torn down all of his altars. You haven't done anything good for him. All you've done is rebelled against him and betrayed him and you've sinned against him. He's, he's pointing out the truth. It is true, but he's applying it in a way that basically is saying God can't help you because your sin is too big and it's too bad and you failed too many times. I'm sure that you've heard that lie at some point in your life too. I know I have. I know I have. When you look at the state of your own life and you realize, you start to, you start to realize the, de- the depth of your sin, that, that on one level is liberating when we give that to Jesus. But when it's, when it's a problem is when we sit in that guilt and shame 
rather than giving it to Jesus. And so what Satan will do is he'll slip in and he'll accuse you and he'll say to you, look at all that sin. How can God love you? How can God save you? Look at all the things you've done. And he'll point out, he'll bring to mind specific things. There are, there are a lot of times that something very specific that I've, that I've done in my past will come roaring back, something I haven't thought about in 10, 15 years, 20 years even, and it'll come back and I'll go, you just feel that weight of guilt again. You've probably dealt with that. You've probably experienced that too. And, and it's in those moments that we have a couple of choices, right? We can either lean into the grace that we've been given from the Lord, which is what he wants us to do, and, and preach the gospel to our hearts and say, no, 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 that sin was nailed to the cross. It was dealt with. I don't have to bear this weight and guilt anymore. Or we can sit in that and believe the lie and go, yeah, yeah, I'm too bad. I'm too bad. God can't love me because I'm too bad, or he won't love me because I'm too bad. One of those two. And so there's the first lie, this lie that says you can't be saved or you won't be saved because you've been too sinful. That's what, ha- that's what this spokesperson from uh, the king of Assyria brings out first. Now, um, this, this whole scene sort of reminds me of, of a, a scene from the Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you've ever read those books. So bear with me. It's a little bit of a nerd alert here. Okay, I'm going to just warn you from the gate here. Uh, I love those books. The movies were adequate. They weren't great. The books are awesome. Um, so if you're a reader, read the books. But um, there's a scene in the books, and it, I think it did make one of the cuts of one of the movies eventually, but it wasn't in the main like theatrical version. But there's a chapter in the, I think it's The Return of the King, the third book in the series, that's called The Mouth of Sauron. That's the title of the chapter. <clears throat> and, and there's a whole scene where basically, uh, okay, this book's been out for like 50 years, so if I spoil something for you, it's your fault, okay? I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to really spoil some things, but it's, it, it's, it, you should have read it by now. So, um, <clears throat> all right, so you got all the, Fro- the Frodo and Sam deal going on in, in Mordor. They're trying to get the ring. That's the whole premise of the whole book, right? They're trying to destroy this ring before Sauron, the big bad evil guy in the book, gets his hands on it. Um, so they're doing their thing. And meanwhile, you've got this other group of people who are trying to fight the battle to support that and help them. They're not in the thick of it, but they're, they're dealing with like kind of the exterior things. So that group of guys, Aragorn, Gandalf, all these people that you've probably heard of, uh, they show up to the gates of Mordor on the outside of Mordor and this, this horseman comes out to speak to them. He's the mouth of Sauron. He's not Sauron himself. He's the Reb Shekha, essentially, right? He's the guy who's going to speak on behalf of Sauron. And what he begins to do in this story, and I think that there's, there's some amazing parallels to the Christian life in this book, in the series of books, but this is one of those amazing parallels that J.R.R. Tolkien, as a Christian, uh, wrote this because it's, it, it rings true where he shows up and he starts telling this group of people that Frodo has died, that, that the ring has already been captured, that there's no hope for them anymore, that it's all over, they might as well just give up. Now, the reader knows that all of that's a lie. None of that was true, but that's what they were basically being told to try to force them into a, a, a defeat. And that really is, I think, a, a, a kind of a, a literary way that Tolkien was using to show us the strategies of, 
of the devil and in, in, in making us believe that we have lost this battle because we're too bad and so there's, there's failure on our part and so we might as well just give up. That really is what he tries to do. He tries to get us to give up and, and just stop caring about the Christian life at all. That's his strategy. He can't ultimately take our salvation from us. He can't ultimately do anything to us as we're going to see in a, in a few minutes. But there is a sense in which he can convince us that, that it's all over and that there's no hope. Okay? So that's what this whole story kind of reminds me of and or at least brings out that idea from Lord of the Rings. So I'll throw that out there. All right, number two. Lie number two. Let's keep going here. 36, verse 13 through 17 this time. Then the Rebshekah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. So now this is significant because the, the envoy from Hezekiah has just said, don't talk in the language of Judah because we understand the, the language of, what, what language was it? Uh, Arabic. Right, we understand that language. So that was kind of the common language of the, of the region. Like we understand you in your own language. Talk to us in that. Don't speak in in the language of Judah, because they didn't want all the other people around to hear this. They wanted to protect their people from, from fear. And the Reb Sheka said to them in verse 12, as we read, he's like, wait, you want me to speak to you, but not to them? They're all going to die with you. Why can't they hear this? Isn't it fair that they would at least get to hear how everything's going to turn out for them? They're going to eat their own waste and drink their own urine. Like that's, that's what's going to happen to them. They might as well know it. So that's where we're at. But then look at what happens. This is very interesting. So he starts to speak to the, in the language of Judah. And here's what he says. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take away, take you away to the land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Uh, let's see, yeah, we'll stop there for a second. So here's, this is interesting because what he has just said to the, to the envoy from Hezekiah is that all these people are going to be destroyed. They're going to be left destitute and all that they'll be able to eat is their own bodily waste. But then he turns to them and what does he do? He says, don't listen to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is going to lie to you. He's going to tell you that he can save you. He's going to tell you that the Lord can save you. But really, I can save you. If you come to me, if you come over here and make your peace with the king of Assyria, then guess what you're going to get? You're going to get your own vine. You're going to get your own fig trees. You're going to get your own cistern. And we'll even bring you to a better place to live. You'll have, you'll have everything you'd ever want. You'll have all the grain and wine. And it's just going to be so great. So much bread, so many vineyards you won't even be able to handle. Is any of that true? No. The intention of the Reb Shaka is to bring his soldiers in and destroy everyone. 
but he's trying to convince these people that they can have a better life if they come to him. It's all a ruse. It's all a trick. It's all a lie. And, and so here's, here's the lie that we can, we can pull out of this. And it's a lie that we hear so often. It's basically this. We can't trust God to save us or to give us what, we, what our hearts long for so the world's good should be our hope. That's the lie we hear. Like, God doesn't have your best interest in mind, so trust in what the world has to offer you. That's what he's essentially doing with these people. He's trying to convince them that life will be better if they stopped trusting the Lord and started trusting the king of Assyria. Now, of course, we know that he, the king of Assyria has no intention of doing any of the things that the Rebshekah is claiming he'll do, um, but he, he wants to convince them. The same thing is true for us. When we trust in what the world has to offer, when we're convinced that the money and the fame and the power and the whatever else that we might, we might try to cling to, we think that that's going to bring us more joy than Jesus. We think that's going to bring us more happiness in life. We, we think that following the world's course is going to be better for us. We actually end up worse than when we started. We do. And it's, it always happens. It always happens because we're not just here for the moment. We're here, we're alive forever. We have souls that continue to live for eternity. So we have to have the long view in mind, not just the short game. And so I understand why this this lie is so appealing because we're short-sighted people. All of us are. And so we think, well, here and now my life would be better if I just pursued money over Jesus or pursued these these relationships over Jesus or pursued this fame over Jesus. We, it, it may improve your life in the here and now, but it won't eternally. And so we, we need to stop being so short-sighted. And that's, that's, where, uh, that's where this lie is really coming from. It's coming from a place of short-sightedness that if you just trust in what you can see and touch and taste and smell and all the senses that you have, if you can just trust in those things, then you'll be better off than with Jesus. And what Jesus has to offer you is eternity with him forever, an eternal life, a a future hope. And and so we we need to recognize that what Jesus says in John chapter 10 is that, that the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came, he says, I came, that you might have life and have it abundantly. See, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the Reb Shekha give this, this kind of teaser out to these people and say, look, if you just come over to our side, you're going to have all the vines you can eat from, all the fig trees, all the water you could ever want to drink. This is going to be great for you. But his real intention is that he wants to destroy them. And that's what Satan does too. He, he will, he'll try to woo us and sway us by convincing us that what he has to offer is better, but in the end, his, his goal is to destroy us, to keep us away from Christ eternally, and we've got to combat that. So that's lie number two. Lie number three, we'll look at verse uh, 18 through the end of the chapter here. Then we'll get into the, the solutions. So this is still the Reb Shekha speaking. These are, we're coming kind of halfway into his speech. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you. I want to stop there for a second because you'll notice this theme that the Reb Shekha is doing. He's accusing Hezekiah of being the liar. 
So here's a little tip for you. If somebody around you is always accusing everybody else of lying but not themselves, they're probably the liar, okay? Like, right? Like he's, he's trying to tell them, Hezekiah's lying to you. Don't let him deceive you. Don't let him lie to you. Don't let him mislead you, right? Why is that? It's because he's actually doing the misleading and he doesn't want them to, to see that. So that was a little side. But let's beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Now here's, this is interesting. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvarim? Uh, Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. All right, so this is the end of the speech. And his third pitch, his third lie to these people is essentially this. God can't save you because God's not even real. That's interesting because what does he do? He, he points out all of these other places that Assyria has come in and destroyed. And he says to them, look at these other nations. Don't you think they were praying to their gods? And those gods didn't save them. They didn't stop us. Why would your God be able to stop us? Why would your God be able to come in here and stop us from destroying you? Because the gods of Arpad didn't, wherever Arpad is, I don't know, but wherever these places are, he's like, look at Arpad and Hamath. These gods didn't do anything to help those people. So your God's probably just as fake as theirs. Those gods didn't show up. They didn't help. So your God probably won't help either. That, that's where, th- this is a lie that we hear a lot. It's, it's this lie that just is that twinge of, of doubt that maybe this isn't real. Maybe all of this Christianity stuff is just a big joke and a hoax. You know, I don't know if you've ever struggled with that. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But I know that that's a lie that many people have bought into hook, line, and sinker. There's whole books, there's, all, there's whole sections of bookstores, if bookstores still exist, that, that have books written by people who will try to convince you that God's, that this whole God delusion, there's a whole book called The God Delusion. Uh, there are so many people that are writing books um, that will just try to convince you that no, 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 no. All of this religion stuff is, is idiotic and stupid and it's for weak people and your God really is just, should just be you. You can help yourself. That, that does ultimately fall very flat though. That, that whole philosophy is, it doesn't, doesn't hold up to scrutiny. It, it, does, it just doesn't. And so we, we need to recognize that we will hear those lies, but we have, to, we have to reinforce what's true in our hearts to combat those lies. So those are the three things um, that the Reb Shaka does. Obviously, we'll hear more lies than these three things, but these are three pretty common lies that we hear. Uh, that we failed too much, so God's not going to save us. That, that really the world has what we need, so let's just embrace that. And uh, lastly, uh, that God's not even real. So let's just, let's just do our own thing. Those are the three things that we tend to hear from the world and from our enemies. And so that's the problems.
But what's the solution? That's really where I want to land, right? I want to help us today. Um, it's good to know what's, what lies we hear. I mean, but, but you know what lies you hear. You hear them all the time. So how do we combat them? And there's three things in chapter 37 that are going to help address these lies. So um, we'll, we'll just finish up the last verse of 36 to lead us into 37. It says, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rebshekah. So this envoy comes back to Hezekiah and tells them what they've heard. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. So here's what's happening. Um, The first thing we see, the first response to all of these problems and all these lies really does boil down to repentance and prayer. If you want to help combat the lies in your heart, you need to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. It is, and, and a vibrant relationship with Jesus flourishes as we repent of our sins and as we come to him for, for our needs. So we need to abide in Christ. You, you will never combat lies from the enemy or from within your own heart if you're not actively growing in Christ. And we see Hezekiah who's made a colossal mess of this whole situation. Hezekiah has not, I mean, overall his, his kingdom was a good kingdom and God uh, affirms that he did what was right overall, but he made a lot of blunders. But this is one of the first times that Hezekiah really does what's right. He repents. That's what the tearing of clothes and putting on sackcloth was, was about. It was an external symbol of an internal repentance. That's what, what's going on. That's a cultural thing. Like you don't have to repent that way, right? Um, that was a cultural way to express repentance, but you do have to have a, a heart that's broken over your sin and knows you need Jesus and you come to him. That's what he does. Verse two says, and Eliakim who was over the household and Shebna the secretary and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah. So these guys go to Isaiah and they are telling him what Hezekiah has to say. Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rebshekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words of that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayers for the remnant that is left. So they go to Isaiah and say, hey, the king is in mourning and prayer. You need to be praying too. This is, all, this is all going terribly wrong. Let's be in prayer. So we see that the first remedy for the lies that we are so prone to hear and believe is a, is a vibrant relationship with Jesus. It's one in which we are quick to confess our sins and quick to come to him for help. If you're not coming to the Lord for help, you're not going to receive help. That's just how it works. And so we, we need to go to him and be, be helped. So that's remedy number one.
Let's look at number two, uh, verse five through seven. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So here's, here's something interesting. Uh, basically what's happening is Isaiah says, all right, well, here's what God says. Now you need to bring this back to Hezekiah. And his, his answer is this, don't be afraid of the words that you've heard. Don't be afraid. Don't believe what you've heard. Don't be convinced that this is all going to go badly because God's going to do something here. He's going to act. He's going to bring this guy back to his own land. He's going to basically convince him that something's going on. He needs to go home. He's going to convince him. And so it's like, don't freak out. Don't worry. Just be confident in the Lord. So what is this? What's the principle here? What's the principle for us that, that as we wrestle with the, the fears and doubts of our hearts, what should we take from this? It might seem very, uh, it might just seem like, kind of like, uh, yeah, duh, we know this, but, but I think we need to hear it. Um, what we need, in addition to a vibrant relationship with Jesus, are friendships around the gospel. We need people like Isaiah to say to us, why, why, why are you afraid? <laughs> Doesn't the Lord say this? Isn't God going to do this? Doesn't God's word point you to this? We, see, sometimes we can get so lost in our own heads that what we need is an outside voice saying to us, you're not believing the right things. You're not trusting the Lord. You're not listening to his word. And you're freaking out because you're not listening to what God has to say. That's what Isaiah is doing. Now, his role, of course, was the, as a prophet for the nation, but, but the principle is that we all need people to speak gospel encouragements into our hearts. We need people in our lives who can sit us down and say, you know what, I love you, but you're being real dumb right now, and that's what I need, at least. I don't know if that's what you need, but we need people who can sit us down and say, this is not true. This is not right. You're not thinking correctly about this. And then point, point us to the word and show us what God says empirically to be true right here. So much of that can, it's, it's hard to do that for yourself. Now, it's something we can do for ourselves. We can preach the gospel to ourselves in certain moments, but there is but there is no sense in which the Christian life is meant to be walked alone. It is a community project. It is something that we're in it together. And so God has designed it to be that way so we can speak truthfully and lovingly. Truth and love, grace and love, they go together, right? Uh, truth and grace, rather, go together in this thing. So it's, it's in unison. But coming from a trusted friend who cares for us and loves us, that can do wonders to help us get out of our doubts and fears. The problem is that so many of us isolate ourselves from other people. Whether that's intentional or unintentional, it happens. We can become isolated and removed from gospel friendships. And, and I think we just need the, the reinforcement and, re, and re-encouragement that to not let those things just go away. Em, embrace 
and pursue friendships in Christ because those friendships are invaluable. I don't know how much, I don't know that we even realize how important these are to us, but they are, they're vital. It's vital to have someone speak the truth to us when we're doubting. It's, and it's on the flip side of that, it's also vital that we have the freedom to doubt to our friends and loved ones so that we can receive help. I think there's, there's a sense in which Christians have been conditioned to say, I don't, I don't have problems. I don't need to express problems. I don't want to burden anybody with my problems. And so I'm just going to put on the stiff upper lip and just go through life and plow, plow through. And I'm telling you, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't end well. I was just, um, I was just talking with a guy um, last week who's been a pastor a lot longer than me and he's a he's a great dude and I love him and and he but he has just sort of gotten into this routine and rhythm and he's going I I don't really have anybody to talk to anymore and so that that has just led to a lot of things in his life that we're the counsel is you got to you got to talk to somebody you got to be be vulnerable and be willing to to express what's going on in your heart so that somebody can help you. And I, and I get it, right? Because I've been in the church my whole life, my whole life. Um, if I was born on a Saturday, I was there on Sunday the next day, I'm sure, right? I mean, that's, that was my life. And so I know firsthand how mean Christians can be. They can be mean. God forgive, forgive us for that. But, and I know how dangerous it feels to tell somebody that you're struggling. But that's why we're so committed here to this gospel culture. We're trying to build out something in this church that says it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to tell people you're not okay. We don't want you to stay that way. So we want you to get that help so that you can be brought into a a healthy relationship with Christ and others. But you have to recognize it's okay to express your need and get the help you need. that's, That's huge. That's why Hezekiah sent his guys to Isaiah in the first place. He knew he couldn't do this without Isaiah's help. And so he sent those guys to say, pray for us, pray with us. And when they went to him with their need, Isaiah said, here's what God has to say to you. It's going to be okay. We need that. We need, sometimes we need the kick in the pants that, that gets us to repentance. And sometimes what we just need is someone to cry with us and care for us and, and all of that is, is true, right? There's, there's not one size fits all solutions, but it's got to start with our, our transparency and it's got to start with having people in our life who will not reject us with that transparency. And I know that that's the fear. The fear is getting rejected because we admit we're, we're not perfect. I just want to let you know something. You're not perfect. I know you're not perfect. And guess what? I'm not either. My elders know I'm not perfect. You guys know I'm not perfect. I've said so many stupid things from up here <laughs> and you guys have given me grace in that. And so thank you for that. But we are all in this together. We're, you're not going to shock anybody by telling them that you're imperfect. No one's going to be surprised. And if they are, that's, that's really a weird thing going on for them. So, um, so yeah, just walk in that freedom. All right, last thing here we'll go through. Now, there's a lot left in this chapter. We're not going to be able to touch it all. Just way too much to read it all. So let me just uh, highlight what happens. Verse 8, 
exactly what Isaiah said happens. The Rebshekah returns and found that the king of Assyria was fighting against Libna for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Um, so basically, this whole group of people with the Rebshekah, they leave, they leave Israel, just like God said they would. And then we read about the ultimate outcome of this whole saga. Like we've, we've been in the trenches with Assyria and Israel for like a long time in this book. It's been kind of this underlying theme throughout this, this, uh, the last you know, number of months that we've been in it. So now we get some resolution to this whole problem. And here's, here's where it is. Um, we're going to just skip down to the, to the end of the chapter. Verse 33 through the end. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. This is what God has to say about the king of Assyria. He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount, mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city, to save it. God says, I will defend the city to save it. Notice why. For my own sake. So I'm going to save this city, not because you deserve it, but because I am who I am and I love you and I'm going to protect you. The, the people of Israel have just ruined everything they touch, but God is still faithful to save them. And the same is true for you and me. He says, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And right, there's some, so there's a messianic issue here too, right? Because the Messiah is going to come through the line of David. So God's not going to let the line of David be destroyed so that Christ could come. Christ came through David's lineage. So he's going to protect David's family for the sake of Christ coming into the world. Then look at what happens. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of, of Assyria at that time. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramalek the, and uh, Sharazer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esherharan, Hadan, or something like that, I don't know, his uh, son reigned in his place. So this king of Assyria that has been tormenting the people of Israel, he's killed by his own kids. And, and his kids that killed him ran off and hid somewhere, and then his third-born son took, took the, the throne. Now that's the resolution to this whole thing, but here's, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that God dealt with the Assyrians and the Israelites didn't have to lift a finger. They, he dealt with the Assyrians without them doing anything. This is God's grace at work in their lives. He destroyed 185,000 people, which I know it's hard for us to like stomach that, but, but this is how, how God deals with the people he made and I, I don't know how the answers to that. But he takes care of these enemies the king goes away, goes home, and the king ultimately is killed by his own kids. Um, but here's the point. God deals with his enemies and he deals with them 
decisively and perfectly. And, and here's the spiritual lesson in that. Um, the, the third way that we receive help in our doubts and to the lies that we hear is we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. See, Christ, when he died on the cross, we're told destroyed the enemies of each of us. He destroyed the work of Satan and demons. He put them all to open shame. We're told this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. If you want to turn there, we'll just read this and as we conclude. It says, um, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. This is, this is the gospel reminder that we all need as we face the, the onslaught of lies that we hear. We need to keep these words in, in the forefront of our minds. And we need to remember who we are in Christ. And this is what, who we are. Verse 13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. God took you from being a dead sinner to being alive in Christ. And here's how he did it. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse 13. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses, so this this life happens because we've been forgiven of all the wrong things we've done. How have we been forgiven of the wrong things we've done? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this, all of this trans- transgressions and sins, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus brings us to life because he took from us all of the sin, shame, brokenness in our lives, and he nailed those things with him to the cross. Your sin is nailed to the cross. It's been dealt with. It's been removed from you. You now stand, if you're a believer in Jesus, you stand in righteousness, not in condemnation. The righteousness of Christ is yours because Jesus took upon himself all of your sin. But then look at verse 15. It goes beyond that. It goes beyond just the personal forgiveness that we receive. As glorious as that is, it gets even better. It says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now that refers to Satan and demons, okay? That's what he means by rulers and authorities. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus so here's the, here's the thing. Just like God dealt with the king of Assyria, that was just a prototype of how he would ultimately deal with our enemies, Satan and demons. And notice this. Like, so, so here's the thing. When we talk about these spiritual things, it can get kind of weird. It can get real weird, real fast. <laughs> so I, I don't make a huge push on this. And here's why. I don't put a whole lot of stock in them because they're disarmed. Are they still around? Sure. Are they a nuisance? Yeah. Can they lie to us? Yeah, but that's about as much as they can do. They've been disarmed. They have no teeth. They have no weapons. There's nothing that they can do to us ultimately except irritate us and make us question things. And that, in the grand scheme of things, is why we can just go back to Jesus. So he's disarmed them through the cross. He's, he's put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That, that phrase, putting them to open shame, actually refers to a Roman practice that, that the people in Colossae would have understood. And that's when, when the Roman Empire would come into a, to a place and engage in battle and they would defeat the army of that country, they would capture as much as they could the king 
and the generals and, and all the people of importance, and they would bring them chained back to Rome, and they would have a procession, a, par- a parade, humiliating these, these enemies. And whether that's good or bad, we can leave that up to history. But, but that's what God says he did to Satan and demons as Christ died on the cross and rose again. He conquered them. He didn't just conquer them, but he humiliates them. So, so here's the question, right? Why do we fear? Why do we fear what has been destroyed? We don't have any reason to fear Satan. He, he's, he's really not, he has no real power. He has no true authority because he can't take your eternity from you. He can make you doubt. He can make you fear, but he can't do anything ultimately to you. So we need to stop fearing him. Jesus conquers all of our enemies. And, and so it's just, but we have this weird thing in the Christian, uh, in, in our kind of Christian subculture. We have this idea that God and Satan are like a, like a yin and yang duality thing, like light and dark, and they're, they're equals, but they're kind of in battle. That's not anything close to what's true and what's in Scripture. It is God and everything else down here. And so God has destroyed the work of Satan. He's disarmed him. Is he still active in the world to some degree? Sure. I don't, I don't have any problem believing that. I've seen some of that. But, but there's, no ultimate, uh, there's no ultimate strength in him. There's nothing left. And so what we can do to combat his lies is we go back to the scripture, which tells us he's defeated, he's lost the war And all we have to do is trust in Jesus in this and rest in his finished work. So let's do that. Let's let's not give him, Satan, the the satisfaction of being afraid of him anymore. (laughs) That's what he wants us to be. Let's not give him the satisfaction because he's lost. Christ is one. Christ is victorious. And let's rest in that because that's where our hope lies. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us today. We thank you that you have not only as if this was just a small thing, but you have forgiven us of all of our debts. You have nailed all of our sins to the cross. You've dealt with all of it. And, and on top of that, you've defeated all of our enemies. What a glorious God you are. We thank you for that. We pray for anyone in here who hasn't trusted that for themselves, that they would do that today. And we pray that for those of us who have, that we would rest in it, find our security and our hope in it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.